Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Angelica Fretzen, uh, Technology Translation Director and COO at Harvard's renowned Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Yeah, so excited to have you on board. Um, Let's kick things off, Angelica. Can you please share a brief intro with us? Yeah, so my name is Angelika Fredsen. Um, I joined the VIS now about two years ago. Initially, I was responsible for the technology translation engine, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to go back into that in a little bit. So that was mostly the product development team. That's how I call it. We call it an advanced technology team through here and the business development team. And we worked very closely with the Office of Technology Translation at Harvard. And recently, I have been transitioning into the chief operating officer role. My degree is in chemistry, I'm, so I'm a scientist by training. I did most of my education in Germany and then Switzerland, then came to the United States for my postdoc at Harvard with Gabrielle Vedine, and then joined the biotech industry for about 20 years, first at Ironwood Pharmaceuticals and then at uh, Catabasis Pharmaceuticals. So my background is in healthcare and the development of therapeutics. Excellent. Thank you for sharing with us. And um, throughout all your career, what has been your North Star or that common thread that ties all of the work in your career together? Yeah, I I think maybe the most important aspect, at least of my industrial career, is this idea that it's a lot more fun to work for something that's bigger than yourself, right? When you're in healthcare, then I think it should, of course, be the patient, sustainability, and we are interested in both at the V's. Then, of course, there is a whole community of people who are interested in in getting better solutions for sustainability challenges. And if you work in a company, I think, you know, after considering the end user and the patient becomes your team, your organization. And I always felt team building, building organizations, driving to really interesting and impactful innovation, all that was something incredibly fascinating and something much bigger than myself. And that was what, you know, allowed me to develop an enormous passion for this and also to, to drive towards success. I think once you put these things front and center, then the rest will follow. And I think mostly job satisfaction will follow. And I can say that I always have had that um, in my career. Wow, thanks for sharing. I think the, the passion and purpose you bring to uh, the work you do really shines through there. So one question we like to ask all of our guests uh, comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. And so uh, Dr. Gabor says, uh, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. And so please tell us, uh, Angelica, what does inventing the future mean to you? For me, inventing the future means breaking down all barriers, right? So again, I think that the, the statement, what the future looks like, of course, I cannot answer. But I think the innovativeness into a certainly more complex future than today will come from breaking down barriers in between silos that we have created, right? So, you know, when I started, the silo between chemistry and biology was much bigger than now. Um, 
now we have this enormous amount of data we can bring to bear and that data might not come from chemistry or biology it might come from social sciences right so, so we don't know yet and a lot of it we have seen through COVID where you know the the technology advancement of the vaccine is not as much of a problem as convincing people to take it right so there's another barrier we need to break down to become really effective in what we do and so to me the invention of the future always lies in moving forward and breaking down barriers and i think that's one of the things that the visa has done very well from the outset. And I think that approach we can also broaden over time. Fantastic. I'd love to pass it on to my co-host Chaz now to talk on the Visa Institute and fostering innovation. Angelica, you, you lead the Visa Institute, arguably the single greatest center of concentrated biological innovation in the world. Can you share more about the Visa Institute and your approach to biologically inspired engineering? Yeah, so, so the Visa Institute is a not-for-profit under the Harvard umbrella. And so we have access to incredible scientists here, right? And actually not just at Harvard. We have collaborating institutions all over Boston, hospitals. We have collaborations with other universities that are strongly associated with us, Tufts, Boston University, MIT. And all that allows us an incredible access to top-notch core faculty. We have people like George Church. I just heard that you just talked to him. Jim Collins, Don Ingber, Jennifer Lewis, Pam Silver. So we have many, many really, really innovative faculty who still have their home labs. So they, they themselves have access to incredible postdocs and PhDs, and some of them reside in their home labs and some of them reside at the Vs. And so I, I like to, you know, we are an institute for biologically inspired engineering. And to me, it's mostly the model here really that is biologically inspired. We live in this enormous ecosystem of scientists and inventors, business development people, um, IP lawyers, and all forming new connections to, to bring technology forward. So within the model, we have the very early part of our pipeline. So that is the innovation that happens very early, sometimes in the academic labs, sometimes here. And then we kind of shepherd these projects through, through different processes, engaging um, different communities. So for example, at the very beginning, when an innovation starts, we are already looking very strategically at IP. All the PhD students and postdocs here are encouraged to file um, records of invention. We strategically help them to figure out what the claims should be and sometimes maybe even redesign experiments a little bit so the claims become stronger and more complete. Then we have a business development team that starts to look where can we build connections to the larger ecosystem, not only in Boston, but beyond. We have certain processes where we help these projects to come along. And one type of this project is our validation project where we look at the first use case for this technology and we fund teams to really work towards technical validation to this use case. Um, we have a staff that has, and a lot of them have industry experience, so they know how to develop products and they lead these validation projects. And then we start to engage again with the outside community. And when we have an interesting use case that we have validated a technology against, then we start to ask, well, what would you do to de-risk it? And, and what would actually get you interested maybe to invest or to collaborate with us or to license this technology? And that can lead to institute projects where we then fund this de-risking pathway. So we have a combination of incredible innovation, incredible players, um, not just our core faculty, but also our staff at all levels and even the administrative teams who support us every day. And we interact very strongly with the external environment to help us to figure out what we even want to do with these projects and how can we refine them in the way that they get interesting to the outside. So that's, I think, what the VIS does very well. And I 
talked earlier about breaking down barriers. We have chemists, we have engineers, we have software engineers, we have a machine shop, so where everybody can go in and build prototypes. So, so that's the atmosphere at the V's, and typically not under COVID. When you step into the V's, you feel that atmosphere. It's a bubbling, exciting, self-organizing ecosystem. And I think that's what makes um, the V's so special. What is your philosophy towards kind of building an innovation-forward entrepreneurial culture? Yeah. So maybe I start with thinking about what type of innovation we foster here at the Beast, right? So, you know, you can always think about the foundational innovation. So that's the kind of innovation that happens in an academic lab, um, foundational in the sense that you do something really, really new that nobody has done before, an entirely new technology platform, a new way of looking at things. So that's foundational innovation that we foster by given our academic labs funds. And they don't have to write an RFP for that. They don't have to have half of that research already done before they get those funds. They can take some funds and do whatever they want with it. And I think that creates this free spirit of innovation and and, and without any guardrails that might restrict it. So that's one type of innovation. When I think about a second type of innovation, that's kind of the use case innovation, right? So, or the method of use a lawyer, an IP lawyer would say. And so now somebody like our business development team comes in and, and they look at, um, and our staff, actually industry experienced staff, they look at the technology they see or problems that they see in the world or that problems that the Boston ecosystem tells us about and start to match up the dots. Um, there might be an interesting innovation in one lab, it could go towards one of those use cases there might be two or three innovations within the collaborative labs we have. And once you connect the dots, you have a really interesting use case and you can drive it towards it. So that's my second type of innovation. And we foster that through our staff and through our business development team. And then I personally come out of manufacturing, right? So I've done CMC at at the companies I've been at. And a lot of times where the innovation lies in product development and process development is actually in simplification, right? And an elegant solution that is simple, that you can make robust, um, that you can maybe miniaturize or that you can transfer from one organization to another organization, no matter what country that organization sits in. And that simplicity or that invention of process and simplicity to me is a whole nother type of innovation. You find it less in publications. You will find it less in patents because a lot of times that is know-how that you actually don't want to share. Um, and it's relatively closely kept. But a lot of that innovation happens. And a lot of times it's the industry experienced staff that can do that because they have seen it before. And they have seen it happening and they understand the elegance of um, simplicity and robustness. So to me, that is this product development innovation that we also foster very strongly here. And then I would even add a fourth type of innovation that we foster here, and that is the organizational innovation. So at the VIS, I would argue that our model is a whole level of innovation, the way we work and the way that is fluid from day to day and might change every day. I think there's a level of innovation in there. And for our entrepreneurs, I think we encourage them to think very innovatively about the companies they want to build. Um, Sometimes we are coming with a very broad technology platform that can have many, many applications, maybe in healthcare, maybe in sustainability, maybe in a consumer product um, that could change people's lives. And sometimes it's really hard to figure out what the organization should look like that can advance that platform and at the same time you know, materialize all these possible and super interesting products. And so Even there, I think there has to go a lot of organizational innovation into the business plan. And so 
all four of these are things that we foster and try to support either through some financial support or infrastructure or just space to practice it through a community where you can vet ideas, through an ecosystem that we reach out to external to the Vs. So all these four types of innovations we foster. And I think that makes the Vs such a special place. And, and to build on that kind of an entrepreneurship, there's a balance between innovation, pushing the bounds of what's possible, if you will, and doing what is practical, scalable, and commercially sound. Um, how do you balance these considerations at the Vs? Well, I think the first balance comes into recognizing that all of this is innovation, right? So that innovation doesn't lie only in coming up with that one brand new idea, write a paper and, you know, getting a whole pad, bunch of pads on the back. Um, that innovation of enabling that initial IP and driving it further and making it practical and robust, that you have to reward that and you have to show that 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 you really value that. So now it does become a combination of top-notch technology never seen before and a prototype with simplicity and robustness so that you can actually get it out to the world. So I think providing the resources for both equally, hoping that the teams will value it equally because we as a senior leadership team or within the organization as a whole community value it equally. And then have a whole team that supports it, allows for failures, understands that you know these, these aspects of technology really plays an important role. I think those things are really important. And then I do think you can span both the, the very, very foundational early innovation and the robust process and product that should come out of it at the end. The truth is biotech, a lot of companies do that all the time. Once they grow to a really large organization, sometimes there is you know, a little bit of a wall between the two groups who do that. And the more you can break down that wall, I think the more effective you're going to be in making really innovative, strong, robust products. And so that's what we're trying to do here at an early stage, right? We we're typically are not the ones who have a sales force and commercialize our technologies in a company kind of sense. We commercialize it by out licensing. And we always hope that our partners will find that robustness in, in what we give to them in our out licensing um, process. And you talk about kind of the licensing process and really kind of packaging innovation, um, building on that, help us understand what are the North Star metrics that, that the Visa aspires to? What are, your, what are your goals in that sense? Yeah, the, the North Star goal for the Visa is really impact, right? And there's a lot to unpack in there. You know, you, you can strive for financial impact and a venture capital firm would do that. We are striving for impact that goes beyond that. Sure, financial impact is great. Either it could come from um, revenue from our new cause or some equity for us, or it could come through donations from philanthropists. But in the end, that's not what counts, right? The metrics, we can measure all those things. We measure innovation in terms of our patent filing. We measure collaboration in terms of how many collaboration agreements we might execute on and how many people are maybe involved. But ultimately, what we really need to measure is impact. Um, and that impact could lie in a very small technology, somebody who you know, bootstrapped a company along and has a relatively small product now, but that is life-changing, right? We have a um, company that came out of the Vs called Propeller that does these baby boxes. And there's a stochastic simulation in there that allows babies to sleep if they have sleep disturbances. And a lot of times, these babies are babies from moms um, who had a drug addiction problem. 
that is never going to be an enormous product. It's not going to be an enormous revenue. But as somebody who has worked in human services with a company, with a human service organization at the North Shore who dealt with addiction, you know, this could be life changing. You know, it, it could really help families to, to keep it together in a very difficult time and help these kids to do sleep and develop. That I would call high impact, even though it's a very small company still. It's a company that has been successfully raising enough funds to start manufacturing and get these boxes out. Some would argue, well, you know, when you think about a venture capital firm where your, your financial impact comes from a successful exit, for example, in form an IPO, you know, this company is not a company that has um, this huge exit, but I would argue it's impact. And so talking about impact, the second part of that is access, right? So our technologies can be super elaborate technologies that could become very expensive um, with enormous profile in the end. And that's really great. And a lot of these technologies, especially if you go down things like gene therapy or very complicated therapeutics, what they can do is enormous. But we do at some point have to wonder how many people and how many countries are really going to be able to access that. So for us, I think there's some financial impact that we try to monitor. There is innovativeness on that impact, our collaborative impact. But in the end, all that has to be weighed with access to our technologies, right? And so, so that for me is the definition of impact. How much can you change lives and how many people are going to have access to that change? Um, and how many avenues to that change can you pursue? And the reason why I'm saying that is because we have the chemistry, we have biology, we have robotics, we have sensors. Um, we can do a lot, even within maybe one disease indication here at the VIS. And that's what made the VIS so fascinating to me. And to build on that, uh, to delve a bit deeper, I'll pass over my colleague, Eric, to talk about the flip side of this, the pitfalls of pursuing uh, radical innovation. Thanks, Chas. So, Angelica, working at the bleeding edge means pursuing ideas that seem impossible and connecting the technological dots to make those outlandish ideas a reality. Um, it also inevitably means running into challenges and other barriers to, barriers to success. So can you please tell us what it means to you to encounter and overcome failure on the path of innovation and entrepreneurship? Yeah, so, so we've talked a lot about innovation now and the VIS model and how we do things and what type of innovation we foster. The one thing that we haven't talked about is the team, right? And, and to some degree, any failure comes back down to the team that is enduring that failure. And so, first of all, if you do cutting edge innovation, you will have to encounter failure, right? Otherwise, you're not at the cutting edge. So everybody has to agree with that first. And, and so what I tell the innovators here and, and, and those people who are really interested in entrepreneurship a lot of times is your first technology is most likely going to fail. You might go out with your company, you might raise funds, and, and then you start to really, then the, the rubber really hits road. And, and especially when you're in complex systems like the healthcare, you know, the human body and, and our earth, so healthcare and sustainability if you really want to make a dent in problems, it's going to have to be groundbreaking. And so the likelihood that you fail is pretty high. So I think what it really comes down to is, let's call it your first technology, the technology you go out with. To me, that first technology is a technology that you use to build your team around. Um, it's something exciting that allows you to recruit great people, to share a vision, to share a mission, and, and build your internal team, your board, your investors, 
um, and make that a really, really strong foundation. And so if that first technology really fails, then you might have to overcome that, but you have a team with you that will overcome that with you. And hopefully that team on the way has already developed a pipeline of other ideas behind because it's a team of people who trust each other, who can vet ideas, who can discard bad ideas relative to good ideas, who can bootstrap some ideas belong. So when failure happens, as sad as it might be, and I have encountered it at Catabasis, we had a phase two clinical trial where we didn't meet the endpoint. And ultimately, it then comes back down to the team. Is this now going to end up in an exercise of finger pointing? Or is it a team that come, gets back on the horse and tries to see the data, tries to dive into the data, maybe considers the pipeline that follows that first product? And that makes failure much easier to endure. Um, and I think it makes just failure part of the history of a great organization and, and knowing that there's something new and interesting and, and maybe an important change coming from that failure. So I think you as a venture capitalist, you know how much you invest in the team in the end. Um, I don't know how you would value the, the initial technology versus the team you're investing in. I would probably argue that you probably invest into the team first and that team has built around a really exciting technology and was formed around it. But my understanding for a lot of the venture capital people we see is they're investing into teams. And, and that is for very good reason because you have to have an expectation of failure. Wow, I could not agree more, more there, Angelica. I think uh, teams are, are absolutely the cornerstone of, of everything in, in entrepreneurship. It, teams build the technologies and they, they build the technologies that pivot away from those original technologies when they, they inevitably fail sometimes. So could, could not agree more. And, um, you know, in, in this question of failing and, and really failing forward and adopting a growth mindset from failure, how does the VIS build an ecosystem and environment and a robust support system to foster innovation and, and support founders and, and scientists through that, those, that process of failure for, uh, failing forward? Yeah, so I think, first of all, you have to have an organizational recognition that the failure is part of your job, right? That good innovation doesn't happen without failure. Um, for a long time, I was a martial artist and, and it was <laughs> I was practicing one of those Korean martial arts where you have a whole bunch of jumping, spinning kicks. And and once my, you know, my sensei said to me, if you don't every, every now and then fall down and fall down really hard, you never tried that kick. Right. And, and so that's the kind of culture you have to develop that falling down is fine. Actually, it's just a reflection of what you do. So I think first and foremost, you have to create that culture. And for example, when we approve projects and, you know, maybe we can approve half of our proposed validation projects, we, we want to encourage these teams to not even seeing this as a failure, but we, we sit down with them and figure out, well, how can we get you to the next step? Um, because this is just a natural process of what will happen again and again. You know, I don't know how many pitch decks an entrepreneur team puts together and, you know, and how many venture capitalists they typically face and they get rejected or, um, you know, they might even have a bunch of investors, but they just have a much harder time to find their lead investors. Those things are going to happen. And, and so I think even opening people's eyes to the fact that this is going to happen and it is totally normal and you're going to go through this and you just keep going. Creating that culture, I think, is already a big part of it. And, and teaching our entrepreneurs that just move on and learn and, and just keep going. It, it'll, it'll work out at some point. I think that's one important part and, and knowing that you can try and fail and fail is just failing is just a part of innovation. 
And I, and I think the other part of it is too then, and I can tell you, I've spent a lot of time on this for the last year, is building a community that supports each other, right? That vets idea with each other, so where people can bring up new ideas. And when somebody, you know, has some constructive feedback to those ideas, it's not a matter of striking it down, it's a matter of making it better. Um, so that people are actually not afraid of putting themselves out there and fail, but they have learned that if they're doing it within a strong community, it's not going to be a problem. And so that's where I think the ecosystem Vs is one of those things that we need to bring to bear here. One of the things I think we do well is we don't have very rigid structures in our model. We are really a very fluid ecosystem at the Vs. And so people who like each other, people who trust each other, people who want to work with each other can kind of self-assemble. And I think that also creates a culture where you can fail in your innovation because you're supported by a supportive team um, that will help you back on the horse and, and vet the next idea. So, so I think at that point, treating failure is really one part of the organizational innovation at the Visa, I think. Um, out of the four innovations I was quoting earlier, the organizational innovation was one of them. And by not providing rigid structures or an enormous org chart, we are trying to to is instill this fluidity in organizations so that teams who really like working with each, with each other can really strive and, and, and can actually get a robust framework together that is going to protect them against failure um, because they're not going to see it as failure. They're going to see it as a natural process. So that's what we're trying to do through our model, really. And then, of course, through a lot of community building and mutual encouragement. There's been a lot of talk recently about uh, this idea of a new biotech founder and this, this founder is represented as someone who has a sharp technical background, is a, very much an expert in their respective fields, um, but also have a very strong data background. You know, what do you think about this idea of the new biotech founder that's emerging? Yeah, that's an interesting one. And <laughs> so things seem to go to phases, right? So I started in biotech at around 2000. And, and I started in a company that was actually not unlike what we see at the Vs. It was four founders coming out of the Whitehead Institute, um, Jerry Fink's lab at the time. And of course, they were deep, deep in the technology, understood that, understood what they went out with um, and were able to raise funds for a business plan that they, and afterwards they were kind of joking about. <laughs> you know, it was a young business plan and, and probably not as much thought to as maybe we have now an expectation. So... Those four guys got a chance to try something for the first time. Um, and I think three of them were probably really, really the ones who were deep in their knowledge. The fourth one, Peter Hecht, was really a great organization builder. He was certainly smart. He knew the technology. But boy, he, what he really did well is building the organization. So you have to have all of that on your team. And I, I would hope that we can build teams that have all those aspects in them. You need the people who are deep in the technology. You need the people who really think about how you're going to build an organization around it. And my hope is that now that we have gone a little bit through a phase where, at least in the Boston area, it seems like, you know, the venture capitalists are waiting for the repeat offenders, right? So the people who have made money once and, and have led to a successful exit, they're more easy to bet on. My hope is that if you have a team where you have the deep, te deep technology person, but also a few people who really think about building an organization, that we're going to give these opportunities still to the first-time entrepreneurs. I come out of a company that was built that way. 
by people who are humble and confident and, and build a great team around them. And I hope we're going to see a lot of these, these companies go out where young entrepreneurs who haven't done it before, who have a deep, deep technical knowledge, but also an understanding of how you build a good organization. I hope we're still in an era where we give those entrepreneurs a chance. And, and so I believe you need deep technical knowledge, um, especially the more and more complex it gets, right? So we're not just talking about biology and chemistry anymore. Now you, you, we're using big data, we're understanding networks, we, we, we look at artificial intelligence. Of course, you need to need to have team members who are really deep in it. And so I hope that the team members that we have in that category who can then pair up with the organization developers, I really hope that we continue to see opportunities for these young entrepreneurs who have both. But I do think you need both. Um, just being a technology grower, I don't think is going to help you to build a product in an organization, and more importantly, an organization that can build a product. Absolutely. And I uh, could not agree more with that. So in, in answering that question a little bit more, diving a little bit deeper, we talked a little bit earlier about how the VIS adopts you know, a loose organizational structure, more of an organic approach to fostering connections and innovation at the ground level. Um, does, how does the VIS approach building teams around its formation stage companies? Yeah, so, so the team building follows very closely to this funnel that I um, described earlier. So, so let's, see, let's say you, you have an academic lab with really absolutely compelling and outstanding science, as we have a lot of them associated with the VIS. So either in synthetic biology or drug discovery or sustainability approaches. And there are postdocs and PhD students and fellows in those teams. And some of them have some entrepreneurial aspirations, right? And, but first and foremost, they believe in that technology. That's why they had developed them. So that, that's kind of the kernel of the team with a lot of guidance from our um, core and associate faculty. And now you start to see a little bit of a natural assembly of other people coming in. And sometimes that's a business development person that really helps. A lot of times it's somebody from our staff. Um, and again, our staff is a staff that is a lot of times centrally funded. These are people who come from industry and have maybe done this before. Sometimes actually our business development people might even be people who have already taken companies out and might want to do it again. And so after this kernel of innovation and our postdoc, our entrepreneurial-minded postdocs and fellows and PhD students, now you start to add somebody to it who might be an ATT engineer. And ATT stands for Advanced Technology Team. So now you have somebody in the team who can take a technology and maybe actually build a prototype around that. Something that I think is untypical for an academic lab, right? So we have a machine shop. So our engineer goes into the machine shop, builds the prototype and becomes an important part of the team. And then we surround this team with business development expertise that can sometimes be internal, but sometimes um, we are making connections to business schools, to programs here. We have an Activate program that was actually started by one of George Church's PhD students, very entrepreneurially minded, clearly. And so now people start matching business school students to these programs. Or we have some visiting scholars who um, help us at the V's to, to refine business plans. Those are people who sometimes have already started a business or have been in the entrepreneurial environment for a time and they want to give back and they want to help and maybe one day they want to go out again. So now you can see that the kernel of the, the initial innovator, maybe there's a staff member that um, helps with writing a validation project. Um, maybe we have an 
business school student who starts to align with the team or a visiting scholar, and they, they might take it out or they might first write an institute project. So those were the projects that are a little further along. And that's how this team over time forms. Not every technology has that team behind it because we're doing you know, also a lot of licensing and, and um, collaborations with industry in the Boston ecosystem. But you can see how this team formation nearly follows the, this funnel and, or this pipeline that I've described earlier. So it's not only that technology that advances, but it's this naturally assembled team that also advances. And it makes sense, right? Based on what we just talked about, that the, the technology and the team are equally important, and maybe the team is even more important. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to drive into technology along a pipeline and at the same time develop the team. And so sometimes we might reach out to the outside and, and we have maybe a person missing in our team and we, we have a venture alliance partner with us, North Pond, and, and they might actually have somebody in their network who they think would be a great match. I think the most important part on assembling this team is not to force anything. Um, again, the chemistry has to be right. These have to be people who trust each other. All we can offer is options. We can offer the optionality of a very fluid model um, where people can find each other, where we offer a lot of different perspectives, but the team's chemistry and the team's members ultimately have to find each other. And those are the strongest entrepreneurial teams that go out in the end, um, that kind of have traveled along this pipeline, not only in technology development, but also in team formation. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Angelica. And uh, one final question in this, in this vein of, of, of topics. Um, do you have any, you know, pithy advice to share with other universities, research institutions, labs on fostering um, a fail forward culture of innovation? Yeah, and I, I know I sound like a broken record here. My experience, and, and that has, you know, that is going back quite a while now, was that the academic system a lot of times fosters and advances the individual contributor, right? So you know, review letters from, you know, for any grants or for any academic applications are rarely written for a whole team. They're typically written for an individual. And, and so even here we see that, like, you know, it is important who is the first author on a paper. And for me, the, the biggest switch in mindset is the switch from individual contributor and innovator and, you know, incredibly valuable participant in a community to not only a team player, because I would argue nobody says that you cannot be an individual contributor and a team player. There is no contradiction in that per se. But I think on the entrepreneurial path, what you want to te teach early, if you're really interested in, in starting a group that has an entrepreneurial mindset, is not only forming team players, but team builders and, and team developers. And I think that's where a lot of times it falls short, right? So you have an individual contributor who's maybe even a great lab citizen, so it's a, it's a great team player, but that doesn't make them a team builder yet. Um, team builder is somebody who seeks collaboration, who looks at innovation that is really based on connecting the dots and the dots don't have to lie in one lab. Um, and then it's the kind of person who not only builds a team, but encourages them, you know, develops the team into a trusting community. And so I think, for any person who is in an academic lab, either as the PI or as a student, it is a different mindset. And I think it's a very valuable mindset and it's a very satisfying mindset. I personally always thought that working in a team is 
much more fun um, with different perspectives than working on my own. So I, I think having a little bit of that mindset going from individual contributor through team player to team builder to team developer will add a lot to any academic lab. And, and I think it will open up a lot more avenues if that is emphasized as much as the innovative contribution. That's really beautifully put. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'll pass it off to my co-host, Chaz, at this point. Angelica, the Vs, uh, it's, it's world famous, to say the least, at, at this point, I think, for the track record for translating audacious ideas into practical technologies with real impact. Um, this, this bucks the trend of the valley of death, that, that, that chasm, if you will, that exists between academia and entrepreneurship. Can you tell us more about kind of how the V sets its scientific agenda? Yeah, a lot of it we have already gone through, right? So our scientific agenda is based on healthcare and sustainability technology, where we believe we can have a high impact. Um, and so the, the best way to do so is to actually go out in the world and, and look for the big blue sky problems. And, and so now, you know, that's something where we are uniquely positioned in the in the Boston ecosystem. And for those of you who don't know, the Vs is really in the Longwood area. So we are actually not in Kendall Square where so many other biotechs are because the Vs always, right, even at his foundation, Don Ingber and, and his team at the time and Hansrik Vs actually, of course, wanted to be close to the hospitals to really understand where the needs were. And so audacious innovation happens because you understand where the problems are and what problems you can solve. So. Now that we have been around for, you know, 12 years now, I think, I think we have a community and a model where we can take on the big problems. So we, we can play this two, in two parts now. We can either take foundational innovation and start it somewhere. Like we have teams like that. We have a molecular robotics initiative where, you know, I would argue when they started, it was just really foundational research. And now we're seeing the application because we have been refining it. We have looking for applications. But another way to go about it, and that's so important, um, or that makes it so important where the V sits, is to ask for the big problems, to understand what they are, to reach out to industry, to venture capitalists, uh, to philanthropic organizations, see what is your big problem and can we do some blue sky thinking with you? Because I would argue, depending on what this blue sky thinking pops out, there is probably already one or two technologies somewhere at the V's that exists and we could connect the dots and we could bring these labs together and we could bring the innovators together and, and start solving these. And so that is a beautiful position we are in now after 12 years that we have built this community of not a single academic contributor, but a lot of them with business development and staff and all the things that I described before. So I think when, when that model is established in, in a very collaborative nature and situated in an ecosystem where we can think together about the big blue sky problems, then you can bring all this to bear. And I think now we're really talking about audacious um, innovation, right? Before I think the VC has, has always done incredible innovation and a lot of big, big contributions. But I think we are now at the stage, boy, would we love to even think bigger um, and, and bring all this collaborative strength and all this community that we have built to bear for any problem that somebody brings. Sometimes we might be perfectly able to solve it. Sometimes it's a little harder, but we have a lot of tools and a lot of people and a lot of community to do it. And so, so that's how I would answer that question in a, in, in a different 
shape and what I have said before. And to give some more kind of specific examples uh, to that question, uh, can you pick a company that the Vs has formed and, and share more about their work and founding journey? Yeah, one, one I shared earlier was Propeller. Another one that I, I think is an interesting one, and, and because I think it shows the strength of the Vs, is ReadCore. It was recently acquired by 10x um, Genomics. So it's really a company coming out of George Church's lab. It's a visualization company. The technique is physique. Um, and without going deep into the technology itself, there were some foundational papers for that technology that was were probably already written beginning of 2000 in George Church's lab. And what the Vs then did was actually add this staff component to it. First, uh, they added some engineers to it um, who helped to build a prototype and not only that, but it was a team that included chemists and biologists and software engineers. And again, we're talking at a time, maybe 2009 and 2010, where these crossing these boundaries was not as usual in an academic environment as you might see it more often now. And so, so you had a team of, you know, all kinds of perspectives. You had a room here at the Vs where a senior staff member and his helpers could build a real prototype that they were able to introduce. Um, to investors. And so, so that I would already argue is really exciting. And then we made this project, an institute project, where we, you know, we added an entrepreneur in residence who now really started thinking about the business plan. And in addition to that, some of the academic skills that people developed were still on that team too. People knew how to write grants. People had interacted with an incredibly strong grant team here at the Vs. So they had another couple of things that they learned there. And so the, by the time they went out, and I don't have the date in front of me now, but I think it was 2016, they had you know, a multitude of perspectives in this technology. They had a prototype. They had a team that was ready to go out. Um, I think in the end it was at least six, seven people, maybe even nine, who came out of the Vs, and they had different functions at the Vs. Some were postdocs and PhDs. I think there was an intern that went out on the EIR, so the entrepreneur and residents went out with it. Um, and so when they launched, they, they were already way ahead. They had their IP filed, they had a prototype, and they had a technology that really just needed some optimization, not some reinvention. And so when you think about that team between 2016 or 17 and, and the acquisition, so the exit for them, that's a relatively short turnaround and it was a good exit. And so I think it had everything that we just talked about. It had a really innovative technology. It had a you know, convergence of chemistry, biology, um, software engineering. It had the staff contributions. So not only did we have very innovative PhDs and postdocs, but we also had a staff that really thought about prototype and robustness and those kinds of things. It had an ERR that wrote a business plan and all of those went out. And this became a successful company. Um, I'm not always privy on how these four years at the company then occurred, but you know, my read of the acquisition by 10X Genomics, it's, it's a successful one. Um, and interestingly, now, you know, these entrepreneurs reach back out to us. We are in touch with them. They want to come back. They want to help here again. Um, they want to, you know, become part of the ecosystem. They always have been part of the ecosystem, but maybe more engaged again. So I think that's a really good story um, where all the strengths of the beats come to bear um, without going deep into the technology. 
Um, but I think it's one of those stories that I, I hope we can build a lot more of these stories with like a, within this ecosystem and this refreshing ecosystem and sometimes people coming back and, and wanting to support us again. I think this one is a really good story. Fantastic. Thank you for those insights and a little bit background more on some of the specifics that VC is working on. Uh, you talked about kind of the supporting ecosystem that Visa has built. Can you mention more about how you partner with industry? and any other kind of external collaborators. Uh, we saw you recently announced a partnership with North Pond Ventures. Can you share a little bit more about how yeah. you're seeing working with, with VCs and other folks in the industry? Yeah, so um, we're trying to apply the same in our collaborations outside as we apply within the Vs, and that is a high level of flexibility. Um, so. When you ask me about one model of partnering, you're probably not going to find it at the V's. Sometimes we have collaborations where um, where somebody comes to us, and again, I you know I don't know how many of these collaborations we really want to announce publicly and and, and talk about it. But sometimes a collaborator comes to us, and for example, in AstraZeneca in this case, um, and those those um, collaborations are published coming to us with maybe they have a clinical molecule, it failed, they quite cannot quite understand why it failed. And they're approaching somebody like Don with um, the organ on chips technology and, and ask them, can you help us? Um, we will, can you give us insights to a level that we maybe don't have the technology internally, even though we are a huge corporation, but, but we are really curious if you can teach us something that otherwise we haven't explored yet. And so those are the typical industry collaboration, right? So now we come up with a budget, we, we, we try to solve this problem for them. And in this case, there were really some very interesting publications that came out of that, where the in vitro system or the organ on chip system, which I think is a very powerful system, was able to predict and, and you know, not predict because the clinical studies and the toxicology had already been shown, but we could actually show in a much better way than any animal model could why this drug showed the toxicity in the clinic um, that was seen. So that's one way. So when somebody thinks we have a technology, they have a problem, they come to us, um, and that was focused on Don Ingber's lab. There, in other cases, we have seen companies come to us and, and they actually start, you know, we, we are kind of starting with the kitchen sink. We, we, we are trying to you know, look at all the things that maybe might be interesting for their portfolio. And we review prioritized lists of what are the kind of interesting technology areas and shared blue sky thinking we want to go after. And so we have one of these these partnerships in the food industry where we, I think food science is something that has, you know, certainly taken off in the last um, years. And I think it will go much further. And so in that case, we were sitting in a room and, and we were kicking around ideas, if you could do this or if you could do that. And in the end, it became a collaborative agreement, which was not just with one lab, but in this case, it is with three labs. We'll be trying to advance technology forward. Again, this is not a case where I can disclose what it is yet, but where we have brought synthetic biology together with maybe a formulation aspect, some technology to scale that formulation. And all of a sudden you have a collaboration between three faculty at the V's and, and their students and collaborators. Um, and now you can actually solve, go after a problem that maybe one technology wasn't fully set up to do it that way yet. But once you combine three, um, you can really take a stab at it. And, and so that collaboration went so well that now this company has come back a few times, has looked at other projects, has asked us for other things that might be able to be applied. So I, I'm sorry to keep it that vague, but um, 
in this case, I just want to focus a little bit more of the model, how we even start these brainstorm sessions and, and how we can then start to connect the dots within the Vs and not just in one academic lab, but in multiple ones. So that's that type of collaboration. And then you were referring to the North Pond collaboration. So that's an interesting one. North Pond has been a venture capital firm that had already invested in, in three of our startups. So they started to see, boy, there's something there here. And it's not just cool publications and patents, but these companies coming out are good companies and, and they're doing interesting things. So they came to us, um, wanted to learn more about the Vs. And what we ended up doing is an alliance where they have set funds aside. It's 12 and a half million for project specific funding. And in that case, of course, always with the agreement of the inventors, we share projects with them and they might decide to invest in bringing one of those forward. And, and that has been a great experience um, because you can imagine sometimes we identify a project, for example, as a validation project, and, and we set a certain amount of funds aside for them, which is you know, very supportive, but maybe not huge. And then somebody like a venture capital firm comes in and starts to talk to the team in a much more broadly thinking kind of way. And so when Northbound came in, they, they picked this team. This is um, an enzymatic RNA synthesis team. And, and they were actually really pushing them and saying, well, if you had more resources, what would you do? How would you create value faster? And how do you think about this company in the future? Think bold, think big, think bigger. And I thought that was a great experience for this entrepreneurial team, for us. Um, and so the budget they came up with was actually quite different from what they had in the beginning. They added a team member, they're off to the races, the goals are defined, and this is now a project supported by North Pond. It's, it's, it's a really nice collaboration. Um, and I think, personally, I think that the value they're adding through these questions and these personal interactions and broadening the horizon of that team is going beyond the financial value they're adding too, of course. And there's another aspect of this alliance where they have given us a director's fund, a gift um, where they, you know, this is a gift to us where we can actually freely put it into different efforts at the Vs um, in certain little bit predefined areas. And so it helps us to build the pipeline, right? It's not only that we are having a strong alliance and collaboration in these later stage projects, um, but what North Pond is also doing is it gives us some freedom to invest in little sparks, um, little glimmers um, at the beginning of the pipeline when we think somebody has a good idea and, and we want to bring it forward a little faster than we could maybe otherwise. So it's been a great collaboration from a financial perspective, of course. I, I think North Pond is really happy with this collaboration. I met with my alliance partner this morning for coffee outside, and, and I, I think it has been really, really nice. And we're hoping that, and it has always been in North Pond's interest to not seeing this as like a competitive strategy. It's, you know, it's a strategy to support the Vs and, and they have always been very clear and we are very clear. We would love to bring others to the table and develop similar relationships. Fantastic. And thank you again for an absolutely incredible episode. We're very grateful for your time, Helga. Thanks again. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.